0: hello everybody welcome to another
1: episode of coffee and clarks i'm your co-host jv brabham and i'm your other co-host tyler duncan
0: and today as you can tell uh we have a very special guest with us this is Jean lauren lawrence uh she is the uh assistant professor of trumpet at university of wisconsin in madison and she is certainly a an electric musician she She's very versatile in, in what she does. She's had a fantastic career. Um, she's played with Adele, the Hanson Brothers, the Boston Pops, the Hong Kong Phil Harmonic. She's been in multiple chamber ensembles like a Simply Brass, the Knights, a if, uh, Far if Cry, so many different um, uh, ensembles and performance opportunities that she's had. So she's here to talk about her career and what she's done and how she got to where she she is um so uh gene welcome to the show special thank you thank you for joining us appreciate your time
2: (laughs) thanks for having me i'm so excited for this
0: awesome great um but before we go into um questions um that we have for you uh tyler and i we we talk about coffee all the time because we value (laughs) it. clearly it's in the title of the show (laughs) <laughs> so I don't know if you're a coffee drinker, are you a coffee drinker? And if so, are you drinking anything or what are you drinking? If you are drinking coffee?
2: Yeah, I am a coffee drinker. It is the reason for getting up in the morning. Um, I, <laughs> am such a passionate, uh, coffee. I wouldn't call myself a connoisseur because I haven't done that deep of a dive, but I care deeply about how I brew my coffee and, Okay. Uh, um, the quality of the coffee but i do find actually the way it's brewed matters more than the the beans that are going into it yes. yeah i'm sure there are people rolling in there <laughs> rolling their eyes at me <laughs> but uh that's where i'm at in terms of my deep dive of coffee and i um i do Aeropress. i don't know if you do you either uh, do you do uh, we've,
0: we've talked about that yeah yeah uh,
2: yeah i am a. I think i'm a lifelong Aeropresser. um and I, uh, basically I make like a pseudo espresso in my arrow press and then dilute it with whole milk. Um, I'm not, I'm not a sugar person, but I, I can't drink coffee black. And I, I know that that again puts me outside of the dinosaur <laughs> circle. <laughs> what about you guys?
1: Tyler? Uh, so yeah, so I just got a new bag last week from swings coffee. They have a couple of different uh, locations, but their roastery is located in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, so this this bag is from Guatemala, and uh, some of the flavor notes actually have it with me: um, mm. white grape, chocolate, and light citrus. Mm. And it's again more on like the light roast, which is kind of where I go to because it's a little bit more sweeter. Um, and my brewing method mostly actually has been on the Chemex mm-hmm. right now, so. Right. um I don't know if I've tried this bag on the V60, but uh, yeah, I should do that. I should buy an AeroPress and then have that, the V60 Chemex, and then I have a, um, a French press, and do like, yeah. a, like a tasting to see. Oh yeah, we should
0: yeah. do that. Uh, we should yeah, that'd be fun. Test, uh, We take.
1: should, we should go live and do that. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah,
0: that would be fun. Uh, hey, ideas, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, I had to rinse some like errands this morning, so I actually went to my local coffee shop and got my coffee because I I didn't have the time to make it at home. So my local coffee shop um here in town um they as you all know uh well Tyler knows and our listeners know I so they carry a Perks Coffee um uh, which is out of Savannah Georgia um so this is they I I got a pour over there and, and they do it on a a V60 um so it's their uh ethiopian uh dynamic and floral um single origin has like peach and jasmine um tasting notes um so they brewed it for me today they know me by first name um, i actually got it for free because that's how i've been there <laughs> you gotta work up to the to the free um so that's what i'm drinking today it's delicious very light um not too heavy it is black you know i'm, I'm one of the the no cream guides out there. (laughs) No shade to anybody who who has cream in their coffee. I also
2: feel like I should jump in and make sure that I share. I forgot to share. I I drink Collectivo and Just Coffee. Um, I want to promote the Wisconsin
1: um,
2: roasteries. And then I also really, it's in Arkansas, but I love Onyx coffee as well. Oh,
1: yeah. I've had Onyx before.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So So. Nice. I will have to try that. I haven't had that. Okay, cool, awesome. Uh, well, that's our coffee talk for today.
1: Good stuff. Good. Stuff. Yeah. So, Gene, uh, uh, how did you get your start in music, and uh, what led you to want to pursue music in college?
2: Um, it's so funny because I feel like, I, I just never stopped doing music. It's not. It wasn't really a strong decision. Or there was no like music. There were musical turning points in my life, but it's funny. I feel like I'm here because I just never stopped. It's not. It's it yeah. wasn't so conscious, but I do have very early memories of absolutely loving music. Uh, for all of you band directors out there, um, thank you. Because I I remember being a kindergartner or first grader, and the high school bands came, and then we were sitting on the floor, and um, and I sat right in front of the bass drum. And uh, I'll never forget the sensation of being literally vibrated by the bass drum, and I went home. I was like, "Mom, the the music rumbled my heart, and I think she thought I think she thought I was being poetic, but I was like, "No, no, like literally, like I was shaking, <laughs> and I just those very formative early memories um allowed me to get really excited about band and orchestra." And then I just, I had a big burst in high school where I was like, well, what would happen if I just practiced a lot? And (laughs) that was inspired by a few goals, um, but also by a few people saying, oh, you'll never be able to play that. And I was like, what if I tried though? So it was a little bit of a internal competitive grit thing mixed in with a a very natural love of music and sound and um, especially soprano sounds. And so there was that, and then I just, I had a lot of opportunity and to exit the field. Actually, I'll, I experienced a few things that I think most people would have found the earliest exit and taken <laughs> taken it, but I, the fact that I'm here at all makes me realize I must really, really love it because I just kind of kept doing it, and I just told myself I'd keep doing it until it stopped working, and it just kept working. So... Hmm.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you to all the band directors out there. I think, yeah. you know, I'm sure I can speak for Tyler in this, like, there's always that one teacher that kind of inspires you to kind of take that next step or your friends who are in the band with you to kind of, that little motivation among friends kind of helps tell you to take that next step and you're playing. I know for me, like, uh, I'm from a small town, so we didn't have like an orchestra nearby or private teacher. So like everything was you know self-isolated so it was all about like these five or six people we're all like pushing each other to be better musicians and you know and that kind of forced us to practice and through friendly competition uh that's kind of like how we all got better so it's definitely definitely true also. yeah uh so uh what was it like because uh, we we both uh tyler and i know maybe some people don't know that you're a trumpet player as well as a vocalist so what was it like majoring in trumpet performance and choral education and how did those focus overlap in your influence in your studies?
2: Um, First of all, so much. It's a teaching how the voice works and the entire pedagogy of the singing world makes its way into my lessons daily. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to Northwestern and I really wanted to find a school that would allow me to be active in both trumpet and voice. Um, not because at the time I saw the overlap, but because I just truly loved both. Um, and I actually think I was maybe slightly more drawn to the voice, but there's a color that the trumpet can get that is unmatched. Um, and I think I was more drawn to the expressive nature of singing because of the layer of the text and of the extreme vowel shapes and different sounds and styles that I knew how to make at that time that I've always tried to emulate on the trumpet. Um, So I actually auditioned for colleges in vocal jazz and classical trumpet performance. And um, Northwestern seemed like the best fit because I could obviously study with really amazing teachers and uh, can pursue the trumpet, but they also allowed me to major in choral music ed, whereas a lot of schools don't allow for that cross-pollination. and as I was taking voice lessons and trumpet lessons, I realized there was an epiphany that um, came maybe my sophomore junior year in college, where I was like, my trumpet range. Now I'm a soprano voice. My trumpet range has is identical to my voice range, and I had I was able to in my trumpet playing expand my range. You know, a major second within a semester, and that then I found that manifested in my voice too. I was like, whoa. And then I pushed my vocals and was able to increase my range there and smooth out the uh, breaks that naturally exist in the voice. And I realized that was happening in my trumpet playing as well, like that awful transition from low C to C sharp. You know, there's that little break there. And then there's also going from um, in the staff, the C to D, the Mm. like, ever loved, flat, partial, fifth mm-hmm. yeah, and sixth partial. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and I realized that how much my singing was impacting in a positive way those natural breaks in the trumpet. So um, uh, I started by realizing pedagogically how beneficial studying both were. And then um, as I get older and, and more experienced, I realized how we just need to continuously pull from vocalists in terms of finding expression and finding meaning behind the sound that we can't layer text on top of as easily. And so um, there's always been a marriage there for those two things. And, and I think it's extremely meaningful for me to be able to continue to do both on a regular basis.
1: Awesome. Okay, so before I ask the next question, can you <laughs> can you go on the weeds a little bit? Like what were you doing, um, and like how did you experiment with that because I, I find that really fascinating
2: yeah me too so, <laughs> so, so happy to go into the geeky weeds oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um so here's an example i was uh, singing a like a late renaissance piece and my voice teacher at the time was like there's some strain happening in your sound and i think it's manifesting in your tongue tension now, when we play trumpet, I feel like our brass instruments, we, we talk about articulation a lot, but we don't talk about tongue tension as much, but I realize good articulation is just the analogy I use is like, it's a, it's a flag on a flag post in the wind is pushing that flag in motion, but it's also making that flag, um, stand, uh, parallel to the ground. And if you think of your tongue as that flag, just flapping in the wind of your sound production, you know, it's way easier to multiple tongue quickly than trying to muscle each took a And so I took the idea of tongue tension, not only in articulation, but also in the shaping of different vowels that you make on a brass instrument. And I started to play around with like loosening the tongue, which naturally adjusted slightly the vowel shape, which, definitely adjusted the uh, overtones that can be found in the sound, because I believe that tongue tension and everything connected to the tongue is one of the biggest barriers to making a beautiful sound in, in addition to natural support and breath support. So there's hmm. one example. You want more? <laughs>
1: well, I, but, well, just to piggyback off of that, like, so what did you do to uh, kind of release tension in your tongue?
2: Um, so I still do this. I built, um, I build my warm up around concepts instead of specific studies. So I'll do a for example, but instead of doing chickwits and then Clark and then yada, 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 I'll do chickwits, but every day approach it with a different concept. So one day I'll do my chickwits and focus just on my tongue and, and the sensation of my tongue as I play chickwits or I'll, I've done a lot of warming up and playing Uh, flow studies laying down. Um, and then you naturally have to relax uh, a lot of muscles in the back of your neck and in your back because gravity is pulling them to relax. And so that also relaxes the muscles around your esophagus and tongue. Um, and so literally that's what I was doing, but then I was also the next day I would say, well, what if I thought like more of an old vowel while I play my chickwits and then what if I like ascended to the upper register I thought more like oh and then the next day would be like oh and just adjusting the vowels slightly and thinking about the space in my mouth and how that affects the tone because we forget um that you know with singers the sound bounces around inside your resonating chambers and then comes out your mouth Well, the sound is doing the same thing when you play a brass instrument. It's just it's mostly bouncing around inside the instrument, but it goes back. There's a standing wave that that gets produced that comes back into your facial cavities, and how open you are will affect your you know the sound production. And so um, I think a lot about the vowels in terms of. Uh, sound quality and resonance and trying to find that really rich overtone sound but also in efficiency because um when you're when you're ascending or descending uh through the extremes of the registers you also want to find a vowel that you can change quickly enough gradually enough that you don't hear this major adjustment in your sound as you're playing a scale uh does that answer your question
1: (laughs) yeah yeah no that's cool i i found that really fascinating because i think sometimes we uh as brass players we don't really think so much about other factors or at least that's something that i found just like in my research we think just so much more like muscle 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 and it's like that only leads to more tension and a a different focus of attention and so um, no i think it's really cool that you've combined both of these things and they've helped elevate the singing and the trumpet playing i think it's really cool
2: Absolutely. And if I could just throw in one more conceptual thing that I think I find really helpful is with singing, you can't really see the mechanism the way we can see our instruments. And so they, there's a lot more analogy-based teachings out there. And so some things that were said to me during a voice lesson was pretend there's like, you know, I'm doing a visual motion with my thumb, but in the podcast, you'll pretend there's like a beam of beautiful silver light coming out of your forehead or pretend there's like a dark, rich velvet, um, chocolatey beam coming out of your chest. And then you project your sound from different parts of your body or imagine your sound is coming out from behind your back. Um, I find that if you, you should all go try this play a flow studies exercise that you're really comfortable with and imagine different beams coming out of different parts of your body in different colors and different textures and, um, look, even metals or shapes and see if just imagining those beam analogies will adjust your sound in, in the quality. Because for me, if I think about sound coming out of my forehead, what it does is naturally release a lot of tension that I think of, in the areas that i think of sound production like my chops or my neck and my body and my shoulders like the, or if you imagine the sound coming out of you know somewhere that's not actually being affected by the tension of your skeletal muscles uh it really can have a beautiful uh effect on your sound so um the the, the more like abstract analogies i found to be really helpful as well
1: hmm. that's cool thank you so much for sharing i appreciate that <laughs> yeah yeah, I think that's
0: the same idea, you know, Tyler and I talked about. It's like getting the attention away from here and getting the attention like on the bell, the sound coming out of the bell. I think we talked about that just not yeah, like it we like, were just all chatting about stuff. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, it was like this concept of like hearing the sound somewhere else versus like you get caught up here so much, but hearing it out there or having a, a focus point, like say, OK, I'm going to play this thing, but keep my focus of attention at the end of the bell. To see what that does. Um, yeah,
2: I totally uh, agree. And I, uh, David Cohen came and worked with my students. He uh, plays in the Milwaukee Symphony. And he, some kid was playing Mahler 5. And he was just like, imagine your sound is actually coming at you from the back of a hall. We were in a big hall. And I was like, oh, that's, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> that was I did Because it's, yeah, the more you can get away from like, the machine that is your body, the better the, the better of a big picture you'll have. And same for golfers, like don't yeah. overanalyze every part of your swing. Mm-hmm. Imagine the through line of the ball landing at your target. And
1: right. Yeah. Yep.
2: Just That's psychological great. tricks.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So as the assistant professor at trumpet at University of Wisconsin, what do you look for in a student? Um, and what are some concepts that you emphasize as a teacher? I mean, we just mentioned some right now, but um, if there's, more that come to you, that would be great to share.
2: So I think, of course I look for a lot of the, um, the stock things that everybody looks for. You wanna, you're listening for a good sound. You're listening for someone who's interpreted the style. But to me, that's like the basic Mm -hmm. expectation. What I'm looking for is someone who's willing and excited to merge their music with something else that they're passionate about. Just because I believe so much in the rise of the interdisciplinary arts and um, in the threading music through not just the musical streams, but th- if you're going to be someone who's going to bring music to the world, bring it to every part of the world. And a lot of my students are double majors. I have, you know, nuclear engineering i have japanese i have a dance minor i have etc you know and so i'm like go be an engineer and bring your music to that field um and so i'm looking for people who are curious and creative and excited to build what we call uh like sometimes i call them creative duets or just build weave in two different interests that they have and they can be two different art forms like I had a student write his own trumpet piece and set it to tap dance, cause he's also a dancer. Yeah. So he would be tap dancing and accompanying himself playing really cool. I had another student who was a beatboxer and she wrote a piece yeah. for a trumpet and beatbox. Um, but I've also had students, you know, create, uh, I have a physics major and he's taking this sonic emissions from distant stars, which are like create these like drone like, chordal sounds but kind of out of tune chords and he's morphing that into music that he's making I you know you're both nodding because you're like that's cool (laughs) yes the Haydn and humble they're cool they're beautiful but you know that that innovative newness I think is what's going to push our field into the uh, being safe and exciting and interesting and keep the audiences um and I think you know we. I'm looking for people who are going to help bring the field in and not allow it to stay in in something that I I'm worried about, which is the beautiful but um, not so sought after um, older art forms. Mm-hmm. And I should preface that by saying I think I think the major symphony orchestras are going to be fine, but you see the the smaller orchestras. Um, sort of disintegrating because we're not doing a good enough job of innovating. And I think, I really believe that our field is fine. That the music, music is not dying. Musical arts are not going away. We just need to do more to to meet people and create art that is um, not only preserving history, but also pushing towards the future and building the new. Absolutely,
0: that's great. That's a very diverse studio you have. Yeah,
2: yeah they're awesome. They're such interesting humans. <laughs> uh,
0: so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think you mentioned that chamber music is like your favorite genre. Um, so what makes playing chamber music with groups such as the Simply Brass and The Night so special?
2: Um, I think there's... Um, there's a lot that makes it special, but autonomy. Mm. I really like coming up with ideas, turning them into reality. But I also love working with people and, you know, creating a bed of sound and, Mm. you know, the richness of harmony is so important. So you have to have multiple people. And also, like we said at first, like when it when you begin your instrument it's this like collaborative community experience where it's healthy competition but also you're going out and making music in the world and then you're going on these band trips and like that community cluster is so invaluable um to just being a human and then so if you, you can pair that element with your creative autonomy and thinking of a way to be innovative and a way to bring new music into the world and a way to preserve old music. You can do all of that in chamber music, but have uh, a more create a stronger creative fingerprint and still keep that community aspect. And so that's why I really love chamber music, and I also just like just the the beautiful sounds that can be made and how um how mobile it is. You can bring it anywhere, whereas an orchestra, no. it's hard to be like, come with me to play this outdoor <laughs> concert. Yeah. Yeah. So, um,
1: so you mentioned earlier that you did some, obviously you have a singing background and, uh, you actually auditioned for jazz, uh, like jazz vocalists and singing. So, um, and you've done a lot of projects that have incorporated theater singing trumpet dance. I mean, it's like the whole gamut of things. Could you talk about some of those projects, how they came about? Um, yeah, I just find that again, really fascinating because I think what you mentioned earlier, so much of school is focused on you go this way or you go that way. And it's like, here are the two paths that you can go. And it seems like you're one of those people that's like, no, that's not true. You don't have to do that.
2: It's it's true. I I wish, I think I came to that realization that I don't have to do that later. My whole youth and training was full of stress of spreading myself too thin with too many interests. Mm -hmm. And then being worried that at some time in the future, I'm gonna have to pick I'm air quoting what I want to be when I grow up. And then ultimately in my late 20s, I was like, oh wait, I am what I want to be when I grow up. It just happens to be these five things that I weave together. And that's what I want to be. I don't have to narrow it down. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I started out huge theater geek in high school, show choir. I mean, I didn't do youth orchestra because i was too busy with show choir it's kind of embarrassing to admit now (laughs) Um, but um i was just really interested in staged storytelling and that's theater does a great job at that i think instrumental recitals not as much um but that can change and that is changing and um so when i got to college i was you know double majoring and and i was doing education but that was uh i think my passion for teaching came a little later i mostly did education to have like a stable my parents are engineers and in the health industry so i was i was honestly just worried about getting a job and i wish i wouldn't have been made made fear-based decisions at that point in time but we can talk more about that later and i'm extremely grateful for my music ed degree um and so, sorry, tangenting, but getting back to your question, um, I've always juggled like a lot of different interests. And finally I realized that there was a market for mixing those interests. And it, it wasn't until I got to my master's, which was at Yale, I realized, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a singer. I was actually making my living as a singer, singing in um, a pseudo professional choir, and then also singing in random services, paid services um and then studying trumpet at yale but like just getting way more gigs as a vocalist and so but then people were like oh yeah that's the girl who does this and so then i got asked to do more projects where i was in an opera where i was a trumpet player but also kind of in the opera we did um Purcell's, the fairy queen and i had a, there was a couple scenes where i was on stage singing i was a fairy and then i me and my fairy costume went down and tooted the trumpet in the in the pit you know and i started to do more and more of those Cross pollinating um, type gigs, and then I, then I realized like, oh, you know, I can c- curate these as well. So uh, the first big one that uh, I collaborated with a friend on was making a music and cocktails um, concert happen and series, and where we had a mixologist pair a but different cocktails with different chamber pieces, and then it was like it, we had a concert which of course naturally turned into a party as as <laughs> the night went on as you're pairing with cocktails and i was like oh this sensory blending thing is really cool and then i um was in new york and i did uh, a portrait for the underdogs concert with my brass quintet at the time and where we actually interviewed like david sampson who wrote morning music we interviewed him and we made this sort of small mini documentary film on the story behind morning music and it's so powerful to display on a large screen the story behind the piece of music and then immediately play that piece. Um, And so that was like a pairing of music and stories. And we had a a trans man share his experience with healthcare and not getting quality experience. And we paired that with another piece. So we had portraits of the underdog and we just basically talked about you know, just human experiences, kind of like Humans of New York meets Mm -hmm. a concert, a Brass Quintet concert. And then another one was, uh, I was a part of the Lucerne Festival. And this is maybe like the beginning of like the, no, I'm a stage performer. I'm a stage storyteller and I use trumpet and other skills to bring them together. And I know this is kind of a long answer, so I apologize. But- (laughs) No, go ahead. But um, I auditioned for this uh, additional, touring dance troupe where they paired six chamber musicians with two professional dancers, but the chamber musicians each had to go through six weeks of intensive dance training. And then we built an hour long show with four movements Um, by we built, I mean, we had a professional choreographer choreograph a piece um, that was based on um, an Andy Warhol quote, the 15 minutes of fame theory that basically became real with viral culture. And so I was on stage dancing, it was called Diva Mania, you know, and we're like acting out the diva scene of having that, fighting for that limelight, also playing our instruments, but in motion and the dancers are interacting with us. And I was like, this is the coolest thing in the entire world. So this is my future, this is what I wanna build. Um, And then that's, there's been a series of other little mini projects, but my recent uh, project, which I'm really excited to share about, is um, a multimedia concert piece based off of my great, great uncle. His name is Lafcadio Hearn. He lived from 1850 to 1904. And he's really the first pseudo-European white man to um, venture into the East and bring folk and ghost stories from the East to mainstream Western culture. Um, and he's really most famous for translating Japanese ghost stories. But he lived all over, I mean, he lived in, he was born in Europe and had a ghostly, horrific, tragic life. Um, His life itself was sort of like a horror story. He lived in in America and rejected a lot of the anti-misogyny laws, you know, um, married a black woman in Cincinnati, was fired from all of his jobs because at the time it wasn't legal and was just like a boundary pusher when it came to like these communities that we are that are not represented in mainstream newspaper and mainstream books, these communities have beautiful spiritual lives that you need to know about, and I'm going to write about them. And so he wrote um, about voodoo culture. He wrote about the he lived in the West French West Indies, and he wrote about um, just all of these um, beautiful communities that were not a part of mainstream white culture at the time. And this is late like late 1800s. And then he moved to Japan and, you know, became fascinated by that culture. So the the multimedia piece is, we call it part chamber music, part theater, part visual art. We have this beautiful um, uh, projected art uh, that, that interacts with the music and interacts with what we're doing on stage it's like a it's a sort of theatrically staged work but that's 45 to 50 minutes long so we're moving around the stage playing our instruments the movement has meaning some of the instruments are actually characters like the snare drum has different lights and we interact with it and it's essentially a portal that um wow i'm really going like into a deep tangent so i hope you're having fun oh, no, <laughs> no this is cool. Uh, yeah but the snare drum is like a portal between The dividing line between our real physical world and then our supernatural worlds where the ghosts and the spirits and like our spiritual religious beliefs live and the snare drum is like the dividing line between those so when we interact with the snare drum we're essentially like reaching our arm into the ghost world and trying to like pulling back you know ghosts that love wrote about into this space and then interacting them with them with sound and light and so it's like I, I love first of all um bringing a, a part of my family history onto the stage but also sharing his cool wicked kind of gruesome and eerie stories and art with audiences and turning it into music and so i work with uh, composer maria finkelmeier at mf dynamics and we actually just produced a film that's a 27 minute long film and it's we have been so honored it's been very successful in the film uh, festival arena and it's it's basically the COVID 19 version of the live performance art piece but in film version it can be enjoyed at home you know without being near people and uh it's basically a it's that it's like eight scenes that i i am the main character and i go through this sort of like Post life transition that gets more and more deep into the supernatural space, and weird things are happening around me and to me. And um, we use we use the music from the performance art piece, which we also just recorded into an album, which is coming out in September. Um, and so that's just like <laughs> a deep dive overlay of what I'm interested in, and and. I I feel like anybody who's listening to this either like checked out five minutes ago, (laughs) or they're super invested because I, I think like if you just want to play Muller five in pictures, um, there are so many, there's so many other people who who want to just geek out about those things with you. But like for me, it go this. This stuff, as you can tell, I'm really excited about it. It ties in all the questions that you have because I'm like, these are the students I want who want to build cool things. And yes, it doesn't need to be a large scale film or multimedia project, but just do something that tells a story that is innovative, that uses the new sonic palette that we have now with the technological instruments um, and the, the new software programs. And just like do something different and cool and tell a story while you're doing it because the storytelling arts are still thriving and well, and that's how we can preserve and continue to grow our art form. So I'm gonna drink some coffee and... <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, sorry, I apologize for the long winded answer. No,
0: no, that's <laughs> great. So I, I'm, I'm curious, um, so if... I'm I'm certainly interested. One of those people who would be interested in that. Like where if I wanted to watch that performance or, you know, see it live at some point, like where could I do that? Where could I find that film?
2: Awesome question. Um so the film will most likely be dropped with the album, which we are looking at a we we believe a September 24th release date. So this fall, we're we're it's sort of like an eerie art Art film with elements of horror and ghost wo- uh, woven in, and so we're aiming for the Halloween fall uh, coming of the dark time. Um, and we're we're probably going to re- open up the film to the public for about two months. It it some film festivals do require that they have the premier status in their location, so we can't make it abundantly public for a long period of time. We can't just throw it on YouTube. Right. Um, so we are going to as we drop the album, release the film, the performance art piece, um, the pandemic kind of slaughtered what the goals were with that. We're hoping to do a Chicago, Cincinnati, Wisconsin tour of that. Um, once we revamp a few things in 2022, 23, um, but definitely going to try to bring it to Boston, definitely going to try to bring it to Japan. I will let you know, I'll put you on my list of people to tell, because I think, um, it's going to be cool and I want every, all your listeners to come see it
1: <laughs> that's really really cool yeah right. I'm just thinking like those rehearsals must be so uh <laughs> like exhausting but also at the same time too like the creativity has to be like out the roof because you're analyzing and viewing so many different disciplines and then trying to weave them together like having the vision having the Ideas and then tweaking and this and that. I mean, it's really, it's really inspiring, honestly, to hear that because, uh, like you said, you're the things that you're doing now. You're following these passions that you have, and then like seeing it through, and then you're you're like being rewarded with it with like these opportunities to like display that. So it's really cool.
2: Yeah, and I'll say just to like make this a little bit more bite sizable, If you're interested in this kind of stuff, but have nowhere, no idea how to start. Start in your recitals. So, build a recital. If you play trumpet, build a trumpet recital. Play the pieces you want to play, and just do one piece that has a cool interdisciplinary element to it. And, you know, get a dancer friend to come and dance to the Peasley Knight songs. Um, And because that's a beautiful, motionful piece. And just start there. And then when you start interacting with other artists, they bring their creativity. And, and honestly, the rehearsals are a pretty organic process. They're, they can be crunchy in some ways where it's like, sometimes there's too many creative ideas that you need, to, you need to kind of chip away at the iceberg. And I think that's whoever's the leader, the visionary, you have to like come with a solid vision. And I have made the mistake of not doing that in the past. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, all right, here is my here is my general vision. And here are five things I wanna manifest out of this vision. These five things are crucial, crucial and there are North Star. Now take your art that you specialize in and help me make that happen. And then giving artists a lot of autonomy based off of your very clear, strong, but open vision. I think that sets up really beautiful collaborative processes. And it can be small, like a piece on a recital. I'm playing this piece. You're a digital art, um, you're a pixel artist or pixel pusher, as some people call them. Can you make something that projects on the wall while I play this? I want it to represent these three things. And you can do that just by looking around you and seeing what kind of artists are in your neighborhood or in your communities. Just start small, and then you could build maybe a whole recital based off of something that worked. And then, you know, before you know it, like, you can get major grants for interdisciplinary arts, and and you just like I started in my my senior recital I, I had my acapella group sing and I had a dancer and I had a choir and I sang the second movement of the Haydn you know like I started doing weird odd eccentric things like that and then that's what people liked you you put yourself on a risk on a limb by taking a risk and being like people might think this is so stupid chances of people thinking it's stupid are really small and yeah. the people who think it's stupid are the are the people who are actually the most insecure themselves and so um feel like feel stupid feel vulnerable but do one thing that's a little bit goofy and different and then I think you might be surprised the kind of people you attract
0: yeah I I think like from my own personal experience I I feel like in recitals that I've done where I've done some pieces that are outside the trumpet canon and they're a little more eccentric that's typically when I get like the best response from the audience either in applause or after recitals over people's oh i really that was a really cool piece but i mean there's definitely something true to that i think you know as you said like if you want to play pictures of Model five, that's cool but i think to kind of keep our art form relevant it's important to kind of like all right i think we need to be pushing more into like this area of what we do and expanding what we do so i i Totally agree with you. I think that's really, really cool with the the project that you've done. And speaking of that, granted, I think I know the answer to this. Like, what keeps you motivated and continuing to, like, be this innovator of these different projects and, you know, pulling from all these different art forms?
2: Um, I think, so we have intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And it's a combination of those two things, because Intrinsically walking my dog and thinking like, Oh, what kind of cool recital do I want to do? Like, here's one thing I was just thinking is I'm a, I'm a rock climber and I love hiking and climbing. I was like, I'm going to ascend a mountain, get a drone artist to come with me and maybe a percussionist, um, maybe play, I don't know, some smaller drone that they they can come up a mountain with us. And then I'm going to have, a composer write a series of fanfares that we're going to play from the top of the mountain because I like climbing, I like trumpet, let's smash them together and let's go, you know? (laughs) And so thinking about those ideas are give me energy. It provides intrinsic motivation, but the doing of those things and all the logistical steps yeah, those drain energy for sure to build a film. Oh my goodness. I had no idea. I have so much respect for the film industry. Now that I've gone through the process, um, and it's draining to figure out, you know, what are we wearing? What's the costume budget? Is there a costume budget? What are we doing for makeup and all the little details? But I think when you have the intrinsic motivation and then you actually set it in motion, meaning you get, you have to have a date. You have to have, yeah. get your people and get your date and say, this is happening and make it a event page somewhere and say, Hey world, this is happening. Then you have the, Oh crap moment of like, of I have to make it happen. <laughs> and so to me, I, I would like to say that I'm purely intrinsically motiva- motivated, No, I have to have that deadline looming and be like, Oh, well now I have to do it. And so I make sure to set the date and get the people. So like there's an investment there from others. So I look bad if I don't do it. That's how I actually make it come from mind to reality. And I think that's lots of things can get lost and stuck in the mind spot and just like talking about it, but not actually doing it. So you gotta find find a, an accountability buddy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so with all the projects that you do and everything, how do you maintain that balance between work and your life? And it seems like they almost kind of bleed together at certain points, but do you get to a point where you just try to shut everything off that you do musically, career wise, and just kind of like get away from it all? Like, how do you find balance?
2: It's a really good question. I think that's the hardest question that you're going to ask today. (laughs) I think it's something that we artists, musicians probably are the worst at. I'm sure I'm not alone. (laughs) Um, and maybe I want to ask you guys the same question because I, I'm still growing in this area, but I think for me, I, I work like a dog. (laughs) I work so hard and I only recently in the past few years have been like, all right, I need this much sleep. Like, let's not slowly disintegrate my health. So then, then you start layering just your basic needs and then start layering thin layers of your boundaries for those basic needs over time. And so sleep, I need sleep. If I'm not, if I'm eating like absolute crap all the time because I only have time to grab fast food, that I I will feel awful. And so um, what I do, because work and play for us musicians are so, they're so blended together, right? I basically assign myself um, like a 8 a.m. to 6 p.m the work I'm going to do. And then we I think we all experience where like that work bleeds into our evening. And then but then at a certain point, I'm like, all right, now I'm done with work and I do some sort of ritual, maybe it's have a decaf coffee, maybe it's like, have dinner or do something that feels a little bit like a low energy. And then I'll start my playtime, which is still work, right? It's still I'm practicing at night, or I'm doing something that is for my job. But I'm just deciding to label it differently. Like now I get to practice because if I were doing a, if I were an accountant, I would probably still come home at night and practice cause it's fun and meaningful to me. And so I, I just end up putting these arbitrary definitions on like, now I'm transitioning into my evening playtime, even though it's still work. And that's what helps me build boundaries. Um, But I do think it's really important because I know a lot of people have really struggled with mental health because they don't set any sort of boundaries for themselves. So what do you you guys do? I mean, help me help help myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Allie, you want to take this one? Uh,
2: I can
1: try. Um, I think finding interests outside of playing has been really beneficial for me. So I got into running probably about six years ago. And that has kind of led me into like half marathons, marathons, did an ultra marathon. And then now it's like transitioning into triathlon. So, uh, now I'm like training for a half Ironman. So it's like, I'm finding these other interests. I mean, they, the disciplines kind of align. Um, but it's so fascinating, like learning about all these pro athletes that I follow now, and they post a lot of stuff on YouTube. So it's like kind of following them, their training, the discipline itself that I, that I really like. And then then I'm also getting plugged into the communities that are associated like running clubs or like triathlon clubs. And so that's kind of been cool. Um, honestly, the, the hardest thing for me is maybe not so much the doing, but the thinking of the act. That's what I'm struggling with the most is just like shutting it off in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes it is like letting that loop kind of play itself out. Like if I'm on a ride or on a run, um, sometimes going for walks help but I feel like for me the hardest thing is like getting it out of my head to stop thinking about work or stop thinking about trumpet or whatever else so that that is a work in progress and that's something that I've always uh struggled with because it's like if it's not working like I kind of try to force it to make it happen instead of like shutting it off and just being like all right it's done like I have a really hard time doing that because I like to take control and stuff so
0: for sure I don't know
1: I, I yeah for me long story short uh finding other things that you enjoy doing outside of it to kind of create more balance, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I think I'm the same way. Um, I'm, I'm also really into like fitness. Um, so that's become like my thing. That's how I get away from work or thinking about trumpet. is just like go lift weights. Um, cause then like, it's kind of hard to really focus on music cause like you're literally focusing on your form or lifting and the struggles that go with that. Um, so that's kind of like what I do and um, like after work you know you know you teach all day and you, you know you practice in the morning try to find some practice times throughout the day so you get to, when I get home in the evening usually I if I get home at like six I'm saying I'm shedding it, my brain off for this hour from six to seven I'm just going to like sit on a couch watch like something funny something really light on tv and i'm just gonna just like sit here for an hour and do nothing so my body can recover physically and mentally and then you know eat dinner or maybe if i need to practice something if i have an upcoming performance i'll do that um but yeah i I need that time of just like a dead period is what i like to call it it's like do nothing (laughs) i want to be like turn my brain off literally for just like an hour so i can just recover um from you know a like day of work essentially um so that's what i try to do I, I think we all you know everyone's has those days where it's yeah yeah i'm really successful at doing that and there's other times when it's like yeah it's not and you know as a teacher at you i'm sure you know like there's certain times of the year when it's like almost impossible to do that um like near the end of a semester or the beginning of a semester where it's like really really crazy so yeah definitely so that's kind of what i do um more or less
2: (laughs) I think it's really cool and it's it relates to the question you asked earlier about singing and trumpet playing you know we can find a connection from our work as brass players into other areas so easily and I also have gone through you know training for halves and marathons and Currently, just started training for a half again, and then also I mentioned I rock climb, and yeah. and I find there's such a benefit to doing those things. And for me, rock climbing, um, it you have to be in the moment. Like you, even though you're completely locked in with ropes and a pulley system, your body doesn't know that. It it you do feel like you you might fall and die, and so like grabbing that next hold has a Uh, there's an importance to it even if your mind knows that you're safe um so there's like this in the moment hyper focus which I think strongly benefits performance and and uh the performance practice techniques and then for me running um in in sort running these long distances and doing these long training uh days I do the hell hidden method for my training and I like the If I have two hours on my feet, that's when those creative juices can really flow. So it actually, I invite work in as long as I feel like it's not a bad loop. If it's, I have to ask myself, is this loop, this thought loop, is it draining me of energy or is it giving me inspiration? and and I, I there's a really great if you like podcasts, <laughs> yeah. um, Pete Kadushin, is a he's a professional uh, performance trainer and he's actually he's works with the Chicago Blackhawks and he's the mental performance coach for them, but uh, he also interviews musicians and um talks about the connection between athletics and sports and uh performing music and i think it's just endlessly fascinating to build those connections and also i i got a dog during the pandemic that's been a really great way wow trumpet's important but i need to keep this thing alive and like when i'm (laughs) walking her there are i think that i'm going to be able to think about work and like build solutions to problems, but really she's like biting her leash or chewing <laughs> up my neighbor's new flowers. And and you're like, she pulls you into the moment a lot. And that's been really helpful okay. to have. Nice.
0: I, I do have an, another question. You, you mentioned this earlier uh, about um, making decisions um, due to fear. Because um, obviously that was some of your experience, you know, deciding to do coral music ed. Um, because you were afraid that hey I may not have a job once I'm done with undergrad you know I I did music ed as an undergraduate too with for very similar reasons uh, because I was like well you know I want to make sure I can get that job you know your parents like you want to make sure you can get that job (laughs) after just in case you never know so um, I wonder if you can talk a little more about that idea of like making these decisions or life decisions based on fear
2: yeah it's such a good question. And I feel like also really hard to find the balance between being practical or making fear-based decisions, being scared. And it's really hard to know where that gray area ends and where there's a solid line. But I think it it comes down to, to the why factor. This is, you know, this is my philosophy on any philosophy, which is, let's say you have a different political view than I do, I can jive with anybody who has a different opinion than me as long as they've asked the word why as many times as I have. So if you say, I believe this because my mom said to, and that's done, then you're not asking, well, why do I believe this? And what's the deeper layer there? And then why do I believe that? And what question can spark from that layer? And then how do we dig deeper and deeper? And so I think when it comes to um, making a big decision, you have to ask, well, why am I leaning towards music ed? Am I leaning towards music ed because I want that job? I want that security? Well, why do I feel insecure? Um, and for me, I, with my, in actually doing the music ed degree, I feel like I loved half of it and didn't like the other half. So then i wish i would have asked myself well why am i feeling these contradictory feelings because part of me felt like it was just ugh, it was taking up so much time when i should have been practicing and i didn't actually enjoy going into the public schools at the time and because it just felt like i i wanted to use that time to increase my artistic skill and ability and that's sad to admit out loud in public because Actually, when I became a teacher, I loved the job. And then there was another the part of the degree, and the reason why I loved my job as an elementary music teacher um, is because I'm fascinated with human growth and development. And I wish I would have recognized that in undergrad, be like, you love this class because it's a psych-based education class. You don't love, I don't love like teaching beginner clarinet. Not only am I not good at it, not only can right. I not play the clarinet, yeah. But like, it's just not my thing. But I love watching a human hold a clarinet, make a sound, ask themselves questions, grow and like experience growth using this vehicle, which is the clarinet in this analogy. And so what I, by asking why, what I would have discovered is I like psychology and human growth and development. So that would have pushed me towards another major, a major in trumpet performance and psychology. And I think that would have been a more true double major for me. But when I got my my teaching job, which I was extremely grateful to have in the recession of 2008, 2009, I was, I I fell in love with the job because I could say, all right, my job is to teach elementary music, but I am teaching children how to develop and grow socially, mentally, intellectually, musically and uh, expressively through the lens of music, but music is the means to the end. And right. when I started doing that, I was like, I love this. I love working with children. They're so, ex- they're 10 times more expressive than the average college trumpet major. When, when you play Tchaikovsky, they dance. Yeah. And when I hear Swan Lake excerpt, it's like trying to be too correct. And so um, going back to the fear-based thing, I think it's okay to have fear, obviously, but you have to ask yourself why. And if you're getting pressure from your parents, You know, um, try to figure out like, all right, am I really doing this because my parents want me to, and that's it, or are there elements in this that I also believe? And I think fear usually means that there's something that you have, there's an idea that you haven't fully explored underneath the stone of fear. And I think it's really important to dig under that and then, um, find, find your like true north star, um, beneath the fear. Um, and I guess other times I've made fear-based decisions, it's because of a scarcity mindset. It's like, mm-hmm. if I don't do this, I won't have this. And that's just not true. You can do it, you, all you need to thrive in this world is your mental health, your physical health, and the ability to problem solve. If you have the those three things, you're gonna be fine, so let yourself stumble. Let yourself major in just music and be okay with that fear and then may if you have some then you could go to grad school or if you don't want to go into debt then get that double major and have that security and say i'm doing this but i'm doing it for the right reasons i'm not i'm gonna pick a double major that's important to me and not one that just feels like it's secure so another long-winded answer but one i'm extremely <laughs> extremely passionate about and so i feel like yeah i don't know what What do you guys think about the fear-based yeah. decision making
0: so I actually um, just shared this story with a few of my students, like maybe two days ago. Um, um, something I haven't really talked about, but after I graduated um, with my, my doctorate, obviously, you know, you're applying for a job, you're applying for everything, just hoping you get a bite. And um, so I applied for this this job. Actually, uh, Tyler, you know the story because you told me about the job. So there's the, there's the school. Um, in the Atlanta area that I I applied for the job and um I was offered the job I didn't have any at the time I didn't have any offers for anything else and it was like this summer after I graduated um but you know I and it's something Tyler and I always talk about like the why so it's funny that you brought that that word up because we talked about that part almost every episode um and I you know I I asked myself like why do I want this job do I want this job? To make an impact with the students, or do I want this job because it's in a certain market? I can, you know, freelance. I can do all these other things, and I just kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, I'm doing this because I may not have a job that's guaranteed. That, that, you know, and all my the, the reasons why I would want to take the job was outside of the actual job, or based on other opportunities that would potentially benefit me. And I was like, I don't think that would serve the students well, like I would be doing them a disservice. So, you know, kind of like I tell my students, sometimes you kind of have to bet on yourself. So I decided not to take that job, uh, even though I didn't have any other offers at the time. And, you know, lo and behold, like a few weeks later, I applied for another job, something that I would actually like to do and was able to get that job. But I would have never gotten that opportunity had I just like yeah I'll I'll take this opportunity um and it was you know fear but I didn't this des- I decided not to kind of go into that um so yeah
1: I like that yeah so um when I was an undergrad I went to performing arts schools for middle school and high school which has its pluses and minuses because you're kind of pushed to go in this direction and um you know, you didn't really get a kind of like holistic high school experience. We're like we didn't have sports teams. We didn't have any of that. It was, uh this is what you're doing. And so mm-hmm. during my undergrad, I was like completely lost because mm-hmm. I too had this passion because I had jazz influence and classical, but I didn't, I remember when I came in and I auditioned for both and I was going to do the double major and, and uh, somebody was like, yeah, you can't do that. Like only one person has ever done that. And I was like, this is what i want to do like i want to work on both disciplines because they're part of my life and stuff and so i ended up dropping went (laughs) was a jazz major then dropped it was a classical major dropped it and then went like just a bachelor of arts in music and then i took like a bunch of management and leadership classes at florida state and like took some other courses like psychology and stuff and i was like oh this is cool i'm like learning about business learning about whatever and um then I kind of got to like play in the ensembles I wanted to, versus like, oh, you have to play in this ensemble to get these degree credits or whatever, so when I was done, I knew I wanted to freelance, and um, yeah, I spent like five years freelancing, and then, um, and then I went back to grad school, because I I knew what I wanted wanted to do at the time, you know, I was like, okay, I want to come back, and I want to prepare better for like military band auditions, and I feel like having that and understanding why you're going back to school and what you're doing and this and that like i feel like i squeezed everything out of my master's degree and it was like so purposeful and so driven like i had that vision i knew exactly what i was coming into and i think also having that experience like not going straight through to the, the degrees helped as well versus like my undergrad where i was just like a complete i had no kind of no direction really you know and and seeing that that shift, those two experiences uh, definitely gave me a lot of clarity and like understanding how important it is to know your why and how that can lead you moving forward. So yeah, that was just kind of like an experience that I had with that.
2: A hundred percent. And I think um, you both mentioned like how knowing your why affected how you used your time and your decision-making. And I think one huge mistake we make as a society is asking the question from like preschool on, what do you wanna be when you grow up? I think that implies that there's an answer and that there's like a finite answer that you have to clarify like a one word response. And that's absolutely, that actually, that question did some damage. Cause I, I was like, well, I want to be five different things and I want to, and I want to make them smash them all together. And if you, if you're a kid and you say that, you're like, oh, that's cute. But then when you're an adult and they say like, oh honey, you're like, no. <laughs> and it's like, well, watch me go do it anyways. And I think, um, not asking what do you want to be when you grow up, but how is it important for you to spend your time? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, not only, not only how do I want to, spend my time, like what activities do I want to put into my time? but also, what does the structure of my time look like? So for me I'm like half my week, I need it to be structured. I need that structural balance and that I need plenty of space and time to be creative and expressive and kind of think, you know and build these projects. And so when I was in Boston, I was a teaching artist which is basically like a hybrid between a teacher and a performer where they expect you to go out and be a performer and bring what you learn from the professional realm and bring it into communities and public schools so as a teaching artist i was expected to be there at school like three days a week but i had sort of uh a lot of leeway to leave if i had a gig and then so i had three days a week of structure and then teaching and then plenty of time to to go tour with Seraph brass and to kind of go be my musician self and I could do that job, but I could also be a professor and I'm spending my time the same way, partly structured, partly creative in project building. And and as long as you know how to spend your time and how you want to break it down, there's infinite job descriptions that you can put in that time structure and then that allows for less fear because you have more satisfaction in knowing that I could ma- I could spend my time in these 20 different ways, instead of saying, I have to be an orchestral musician or a military band musician or a professor, because those are the only three ways to get a steady job in music. That is fear-based and that's not true. And so I think defining how you want to spend your time is so incredibly important. I Absolutely.
0: know. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much for all the insight um I mean I don't I don't know what else to say (laughs) yeah no
1: it's great because it's like it's like the conversations that JV and I have this is like exactly the kind of stuff that we would talk about and it's like you know for me I leave this conversation feeling like pumped and like fired up you know and that's how I know it's like okay this is this was like a a really good inspiring and not inspiring like motivation like motivation fleeting but just like yeah like you hear stuff like this and it gets you going like it's it's exciting
2: yeah there's, there's like a wholesomeness to yeah. talking about our field but also like looking forward and backwards like mm-hmm. looking backwards I mean like how did I arrive here and what are the pros what are the good things and bad things that happened and what would I do differently but then what are we looking towards in the future um I, I mean I'm I know I talked a lot but like I'm so curious to hear I love hearing your answers and and what like do you mind if I ask you some questions? Is that okay? Sure. <laughs> you can stop the podcast if you want. I just... <laughs> but um, uh, I'm curious to hear like, if you went through any sort of major turning points in your careers or life. And like, if you if you could go back and tell your 18-year-old self something, what would it be?
1: Oh, I, I got an answer right away. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I would have not gone straight into college from high school. I think I would have benefited... Uh, from taking like a year off and just kind of, because again, I, I went through that art school process. I know Javen, you went through one too, but it was like every single day you had after school rehearsal and stuff. And it was like, I remember my senior year, I was like, I don't want to do youth symphony. I was like, because I wanted to watch. Uh, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida originally, and I was like, I just wanted to watch a football game with my dad and just <laughs> like I didn't want to go this rehearsal because I didn't like the stuffiness of an orchestra at the time. And I was just like, I don't want to do this and. um yeah I would have definitely taken a year off and just allowed myself to like ask like what I actually enjoy doing and what I like doing um i that's just one that came to my head right away
0: you know um, uh I didn't know that that's interesting yeah
1: um I think for me, a turning
0: point hmm that's a good question uh I think a turning point for me was um uh so my first year of my doctorate, um I went through a, a very traumatic experience um dealing with just like some playing issues and just like mental health issues. And I think, you know, getting on the other side of all of that, that made me reevaluate a lot of things. You know, I reshaped my body, I went through a major weight loss, got fit, uh kind of got my chops back in order eventually, you know, maybe a year after that. Um, and that experience taught me so much about myself, about how to be a better teacher if that were to happen in the future for me, um, how to be, you know, how to balance my time, um, and certain, like making sure I put values on certain things in my life and, you know, the people I'm around or people I associate with. Um, uh, so I think that was a turning point for me, I think that really, shape how i teach today how i am just with people in general and how i'm able to you know hopefully connect with students and empathize with different experiences um so to me i think that was like that year was a a big turning point yeah
2: for sure and i i think what's really cool to hear is when yeah, I, I guess when you build in reflection to your life, and I, I'm also a queen of the victory lap. I didn't do an extra year after high school. I really also wish I would have, but I did a fifth year of college to finish the double major. Um, I did a third, I did an artist diploma at Yale. And um, I also say I did the Carnegie Hall chamber music Ensemble Connect program. And I stayed in New York to freelance for an extra year, an extra third year. And so building in an extra year of reflection after each one of these sort of milestone experiences, I noticed I got infinitely better at my craft, not during the uh, learning process, but actually in the year after. Because there's a certain period of time that I need to absorb things. And I think building in reflective moments, whether they're micro or macro, a full year or even just a day one, like two days a month to be able to check in with yourself. How am I doing? Like, how am I really doing? Right. Am I okay? You know, is this, is this process working for me? And I wish we built in reflection into our culture and communities mm-hmm. way more. And I, I want somebody out there to also make a, a post high school, um, internship for people where you're allowed to go around and you're on rotation where you shadow different jobs for an entire year for you spend like one or two months shadowing different jobs where you get to actually learn what it means to sit in that seat before you go to college i mean we'd save so much money we'd save so much time just letting high school kids not go straight to college Uh, and college is so expensive now that i feel like that program needs to be built if it's not already in existence
0: (laughs) yeah i agree we need a lobby yeah (laughs) Yeah. how do we do that (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah no i
1: it's it's interesting yeah i i read this book called late bloomers um not too long ago and it talked about like our country's obsession with like early achievers and them having success like right away and the amount of money that's spent on like essentially grooming these kids to go attend these ivy league or like you know top tier schools and uh what that does to them, you know, from a mental health standpoint, also to the parents, this and that. And um, yeah, it's just, my wife and I were actually about to have our firstborn next month in a few weeks, actually. Congratulations. Thank you. And so like, we talk about it all the time. We're like, you know, we're going to allow them to just, here's kind of a buffet of things that you can go try to do, see what sticks, see what doesn't, but uh, let them kind of drive that passion instead of like, us driving that for them. Cause my wife, she's also a musician. Um, she's a flute player, went through like the schooling and all that stuff. And it's like we both have had those experiences of just like burnout and just like it's it's like playing an instrument, it shifts. Like when you're a kid, it's like, oh, this is cool, this is fun. And then it something changes. It's like when you get to like the college level and you're like, oh this is a like a mechanical thing to provide income this and that And it's like that love again it becomes like fear-based type of mentality and uh yeah we don't we don't want to like preach that or like push that on our son so yeah.
2: yeah and you know I was recently talking to somebody who is a therapist and they were talking about how with children we start them young we're like you are smart you are beautiful you are funny and there's like it's 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 putting a billboard on this thing that's supposed to be a process. And so, you know, uh, talking to ourselves the way we should be talking to kids, um, which is another reason I'm grateful for my music (laughs) ed degree. Like you are in the process of figuring this out. You are, you are able to problem solve. And do you see how good you did today? You did a great job problem solving today. Like praising the process instead of the results is, yes, um, something that like, I wish I would have done for myself starting way younger. And and even now I I try to be like, you, you know, you are able to readapt and develop in this new environment. You just take some time and you're within that process. And I think giving ourselves that grace is so important. And it's it's all in the child psychology books, but like we should do it in our adult psychology as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. I agree. Yeah. I look to a lot of uh, sports psychologists and, you know, they're all about process over results because, you know, especially for like professional or even college team is, you know, they spend so many hours doing certain um, drills or what have you that it, they, they're so focused on, especially like someone like Nick Saban, who's Alabama coach, he's, he's notorious for talking about the process. Like the result is completely irrelevant. We focus on the process, we'll get the result, but to where Everything needs to be about the process. So.
2: For sure. And the result is just a data point that's within a larger structure of the process. Right. You know, and I, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but um, I, when I was younger, each concert mattered so much. And one time I had the opportunity to play Mahler 5 and the whole experience went well, except for I chipped like the, high, the first high A. And it's like i've been training my whole life to do <laughs> if i could could have like kicked my instrument drop kicked it i would have done that at that point and and i think because i put so much weight on the single performance but now that i tour with Seraph brass and we do 60 concerts a year it's like every little chip note and mistake doesn't matter it's like oh well I'll, I'll try to pick that up tomorrow you know and so i wish i would have put so much less weight on this individual performances and yes if you're only doing one performance of Petrushka you might leave some brown notes on the stage and like you might, you just have to tell yourself, I I will probably get another opportunity to perform, to perform this piece or I'll perform another big exposed piece in my life. And like, what did I learn from this? You know? And so the, the process really is something that I think we, we mistrain in, especially in classical music. It's, so much about reproducing sameness instead of reproducing expression that is not fear-based.
1: Yep, that's, uh, I'm actually working with uh, Jan Kagerice right now. And so oh, she's cool. uh, talking about all that kind of stuff. Cause um, yeah, I've been dealing with like a, a nerve injury in my lip. And so she was, we we're doing these exercises and she's like, are you a perfectionist? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, you need to learn how to like get that monkey off your shoulder. Uh, and she was telling me the story she was playing and she missed one note, like at the end of an tune. and she went back and played the whole thing down again. And her teacher was just like, yeah, that doesn't impress me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, basically it was just like, you know, you can play, you know, something that has, you know, a hundred notes and you miss one. And it's like, you think about the one note that you miss and not the, you know, all the other stuff. And it's like, why, you know, and it's like the same thing for me. It's like, I can sit there and think about oh, that one shift note but it's like, man, what about all the other good stuff that, that happened? Again, that's something that like can get built in, especially like taking auditions and this and that it's like, oh, that note was off that note. And that you just like can get in that mindset and live there. And it can become very toxic after a while.
2: So toxic and so
1: dangerous.
2: Yeah. Not only for your playing and your music making, but for your mental health. I know. Cause I went down that path and like my worth was based on the number of notes I got right. It was so yeah. sad. It's so sad and it was not a good space to be in yeah um oh yeah well i mean that's really interesting and i mean, i feel like i i really am interested in the injury that you're having but maybe that's another conversation <laughs> yeah
1: yeah we could chat more uh after the uh after the interview if you want yeah because yeah, it's totally yeah. like changed so much and this i feel like what well, you talked about like a turning point like i had one like six years ago with like health and fitness and like you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then now it's like, uh, you know, I've, I've only been in this job for like over a year. And so it's like, oh, this was quote unquote, my dream job type of thing. And then here I am feeling like I have to like fight for it almost like with the recovery, but in terms of like pedagogy and how I approach brass playing and everything, it's kind of like everything I've thought before is kind of getting thrown out, which is why I was so curious about like the singing. Cause she has us doing a lot of singing and, um exercises that like relax tension in the tongue and like all these kind of things so it's like oh this is really interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean I actually recently worked with a speech pathologist and fascinating stuff where okay. part of your you build in some exercises that are it's basically like raspberries you know like <laughs> I'll be playing my morning warm up and then I'll be like you know and yeah. it's it's actually really helpful and um Another great thing to explore, speech pathology, physical therapy, etc., um, has been so helpful for me. And I also had an injury when I left Northwestern. I couldn't even play a major scale. I spent a year and a half super injured, not able to really play outside the staff. Took two years to build back. The first time I played for fifteen minutes straight after oh, I graduated wow. from Northwestern was in my Yale audition. Like, I did. I was playing small baby chunks for an entire year and a half. Like i'm talking like five note scales um relearning oh. how to how to enter you know how to enter a practice session and put the trumpet on my face starting from scratch and man it builds so much more than resilience it builds a, an adult's approach to a beginner's entry point point. <laughs> and as a teacher that's invaluable i think yeah. um but also as an adult who like now you can solve any problem from the, from the ground up, which I think is really cool.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, we should talk after this. Talk. That's, that's, that's where I'm We've at had a right two hour now.
2: Conversation. Yeah.
1: We should talk because uh, through this process, I've been able to talk to a lot of people that have gone through this, but then, um, you know, some people it's like, like what you're going through right now is uh, what you went through kind of sounds like my process where it's like, like jam will just be like the body will figure it out. And it's like, it just takes time. And I'm like, why is my body so, you know, you start getting down on yourself uh, about like what you could do, but then you're like, but really that wasn't efficient because that led to injury. And then this and right. that, and, you know, so uh, yeah, we'll definitely chat after this. Cause uh, it's good to, for me, it's like healing <laughs> to talk to other people about it. So
0: awesome. Well, thank you again for talking to us. This has been an, an amazing conversation um, with you today. Um, but before we wrap up, we kind of like to end on a fun little segment called, what are you listening to? So this could be anything. Could be classical, could be R&B, could be country, whatever, jazz. So are you uh, listening to anything? Music, it can be old music, classical, anything.
2: Yes, there's a... A hip hop artist based in Israel named, I hope I say it correctly, Noga Irez, N O G A E R E Z. I don't know if you've heard of her.
0: I could write that down.
2: <laughs> her stuff is so cool. Um, I've also been listening to Bonnie Vare and Billie Eilish a lot. Um, and the last thing on my doc was Andy Akiho. He wrote a piece for Trumpet steel pan and violin called A Ray's End. But I mean, I've just been kind of, I just went through a big Caroline Shaw phase and now I'm putting Andy Akiho. I'm trying to find interesting, cool composers. Gabriella Smith is another one. I just listened to Blueprinting by Azuri, the Azuri Quartet and um, trying to find like the, how we can merge this sort of new hip hop trend that Billie Eilish is a, she's a groundbreaker in where it's like very calm hip-hop um, with a, with very strong contrasts mixing that with sort of contemporary urban classical um, I think that there's a lot of really exciting possible innovative sounds I also started writing my own music recently um nice. haven't brought anything like <laughs> that but um trying to learn from all these amazing people and see, we'll, see what
0: you to look for that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 And I was like, Oh, as soon as I say that, I, I got to follow through with it, <laughs> which is good. Got to get that experience with motivation.
1: Hi, what are you listening to? So there's this rapper he's originally out of Charlotte. And then I was doing some research on him. His name is Lute L U T E. His real name is Luther, but he's actually signed on J Cole's album. Oh. And, um, but I was listening to him and it sounded like, you know, actual drum set and then like actual musicians playing. It wasn't like, um, like synth or any of that stuff, but it was like really simple, like simple baseline, you know, simple harmonies, just a few, few different chords, but his rapping style I was like, Oh, he kind of sounds like common. So mm-hmm. I went and, and then listened back to common again. And then, uh, from common, then I went back to like Dwele, and it's like, Oh wow. Like, this is cool. Cause I haven't like listened to them in a while. Um, But yeah, I love when that happens. So like you listen to somebody and you're like, oh man, it sounds like this person. Cause you know, growing up in jazz, like you can hear that lineage of like, oh, who these people kind of listened to and studied. And it's cool to be able to do that. For me, I feel like I'm a beginner in that with like hip hop and stuff, like tracing all that kind of those kinds of things. But uh, yeah, that was kind of cool. So yeah, Lute, L-U-T-E is his his rapper name. But um, yeah, he seems pretty young too, like in his 20s. Awesome.
0: Well, i have I'm listening to uh, at least this past week. Um, Jordan Rocky. He's a um, New Zealand Austra- uh, Australian Australian uh, musician. I think he's based in London, though. It's um, he, kind of like a um, fusion. I guess like you, your artist. Uh, it's a fusion like R and B, hip hop, R uh pop um he's a great musician um he just released a new album maybe a few months ago called late night tales um but he also if you you want to check out some of his live stuff he did one of the um npr tiny desk concerts
1: oh nice um
0: so you can check that out he's on there too he's great voice great singer um his music is definitely box it's a vibe (laughs) it's a vibe and, uh, and also, I, I think I mentioned this group um, in a, another episode, um, Phony People. They just released the, uh, a new album. Um, that's Phony, P-H-O-N-Y. People, just P-P-L. Um, for anybody who's curious. Uh, they're a hip-hop group out of, I think, Brooklyn? Brooklyn or Queens? I think it's Brooklyn. Um, and they have... They've done Tiny Desk as well, if you want to check out some of their, their older stuff. But he, they just released a new album uh, maybe like a month ago. um, That's really good. So that's what I've been listening to. Nice. So we we want to thank this um, Jean Lawrence again for joining us. This has been a, a great conversation. We really, really enjoy it. At least I think I can speak for Tyler on that. <laughs> and we hope you all enjoy. Um before we wrap up, um Jean, if people want to like follow you and, and and read more about you and, and see what the kind of projects you're working on, where can they find you?
2: They can find me. Uh my website is just genelawrence.com and also my Instagram handle is at Gene Lawrence and I tend to put a lot of trumpet based stuff, some trumpet tip, practice tips mixed in with some vocals, mixed in with a lot of dog pictures so um <laughs> it, you'll get the whole gamut if you want to find the instagram handle or the website
0: yeah yeah i think i saw like the little clips from your your projects that you i i looked at your website sorry I, <laughs> I, I i saw like clips from the uh the videos the the projects that you you mentioned earlier they look really really cool i definitely have to check those out and you said september 24th is about what you're you're aiming for right yeah for the
2: release yeah and i can send you the trailer to the film if you're interested awesome yeah yeah
0: yeah we can definitely post that awesome um so please uh subscribe to copying clarks on instagram and on youtube and on our apple podcast account subscribe give us five stars share with your friends all those great things you're a music educator you know use this as much as you want send it to your band directors or music teachers all over the country um so we want to thank you all for listening in and we hope to have new episodes very soon see you next time